I tried doing double episodes. I think it was near the end of maybe 2016, and that's a lot. So it's too much. <laughs> it's a yeah. lot to try to do two in a week. Oh man! Are you guys there? Yeah. Can you hear yeah. me? Okay. Oh, yeah. We oh, just, just all stopped talking. Instantly quiet. <laughs> <laughs> it went like instantly quiet at the same time. All right. Sorry. Okay, you'll have to cut that out. Welcome to episode 352 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we got a good interview today. It's long. If you look at the timestamp, you already know that, but uh, it's good. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into that in just a second. First, we got to thank our uh, Golden Ratio supporter, Float. Float is an easy-to-use resource management tool for planning your projects and scheduling your team's time. It gives you a high-level view of who's working on what so that you can plan your team's time based on their real availability. You can learn more at float.com slash design details. Thank you, Float. Thanks, Float. We also have some new very important pixels this week. Oh, Marshall, yeah. we have a very, very curious name that came through our VIPs this week. <laughs> I see a couple, but yeah, yeah, but it hit me. Let's do shout out to Harish Shivaraman and Nayeli Perez. Shout out to Ping, just Ping. Mm -hmm. But finally... Marshall, this last one is is a curious case. Uh, username Joe Plus, but it's J O and then a plus symbol. But it's not even the, character the plus. plus yeah. No, it's not the character plus. Oh. It is a very small, like superscript plus, like very tiny. Oh. Plus. It almost looks like an asterisk. Like UTF. Yeah. Huh. Um, but uh, goes by Joe Plus. <laughs> so Joe, Joe like to the power of plus <laughs> exactly but the character is so small it might even be like to the power of to the power of oh yeah yeah super super script yeah <laughs> something like that <laughs> okay if you didn't know we're a listener supported podcast we're on patreon uh people can support the show and it helps us directly make this every single week and uh, the main sort of reward of supporting the Patreon is you get access to full episodes of the podcast through a segment called the Sidebar. And the Sidebar normally is like cool things, but design specific, or we'll share a design story or just talk about design news. Uh, just something always like nice and juicy and design related. Well, today, since we're doing an interview, the Sidebar is going to be a little different. It'll be a little special. So uh, if you are not a Patreon supporter, you get just keep listening. You're going to hear our interview uh, shortly. It's great. It's fantastic. But if you are supporting the show on Patreon, this week's sidebar is a set of rapid fire questions for our guest. So if you want uh, the full interview, go to patreon.com slash design details. Just starts at a buck a month and uh, it'll get you access to this week's sidebar and all past sidebars and all sidebars going forward. So thank you to everybody for supporting the show. It's at patreon.com slash design details. Okay, Marshall, really quickly. Before we get into our interview, we do have a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of follow-up. Uh, let's yeah. talk about this. So last week we talked about uh, accessibility gut checks, and we got a tweet this week. Maybe you should read this one. Okay, yeah. Near and dear to my heart, Brian. So we heard from Manny, fam of the pod. Uh, Manny asked, since we are talking about accessibility here, did you guys see the accessibility settings for The Last of Us Part 2? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. And I... I've very much uh, in agreement with the sentiment. Um, if you're not aware, uh, there was a game, shit, like six or seven years ago, I think it came out, uh, called The Last of Us. It's a PlayStation game. 
revolutionary, very beautiful, but also like an amazing story. And it's lauded as like one of the best games made for that generation of PlayStation, right? Uh, and one of the best games ever made in general. Um, just, uh, I think, was it last night or a couple nights ago? Um, Last of Us Part Two was released. And as part of their release, they included a whole bunch of accessibility settings. Now, games usually have accessibility settings. We've talked about that before, like contrast for colorblindness. And, and, and there's some easy stuff, right? There's some stuff that doesn't take a whole lot of effort, doesn't require like a whole bunch of extra budget to, to justify including in your game. But when you have a AAA game like this that's highly anticipated and is uh, <laughs> well-funded, sometimes you have extra budget. And all it takes is the intention and care of the people working on it to make sure that something awesome like this happens. So I'm not sure exactly how the, the relationship began, but um, they worked with a YouTube creator by the name of Steve Saylor. He's a, a blind gamer, has his own YouTube channel, and he uh, went to work with uh, Naughty Dog Studios Is the the developer that put together this game and and acted as a, uh, a consultant as uh, they were developing their their uh, vision impairment accessibility settings right and and they started this from the very beginning and i think what's really really cool about this is it's not just vision impairment it's not just hearing impairment it's not just uh, motor impairments right this is Usually when you play a game that has any sort of accessibility uh, settings it's it's usually pretty shallow and usually for just one of these areas, likely for hearing impairment or maybe some vision impairment stuff, but like uh, it's usually pretty narrow and it doesn't include all three groups of, of people. This one does, and the settings are so deep. Uh, I'll, we'll have a link in the show notes to a video where he talks about um, him working with Naughty Dog and uh, all of the stuff that he included, as well as uh, actual footage of... Uh, what it looks like so you can you can if you don't own the game you can see what it looks like to play this game in different modes depending on uh your impairment so i'm I'm glad that manny had us call that out links in the show notes for this yeah, stuff that's but so it's cool. super fucking cool hopefully this sets a standard for what is expected of a triple a game moving forward as far as accessibility requirements go one can hope that's fantastic yeah cool all right so i blew through that really quick but okay because now we have an interview with Maurice Cherry. Yeah, today we're talking with Maurice Cherry. If you don't know Maurice, uh, man, what does Maurice not do? So Maurice is a designer, podcaster, digital creative. Uh, he started his own agency called Lunch. He's worked at places like Glitch and AT&T. He runs his own design podcast called Revision Path, which has released 351 episodes like us. Uh, so like prolific um he's interviewing black designers developers and digital creators from all over the world he's also worked on projects like the black weblog awards 28 days of the web the year of t and he's uh a design anthology called recognize he's been a receiver of awards his podcast is in the smithsonian maurice cherry is an awesome designer and we had so much fun talking to him uh, as you can tell by the timestamp, we just kept going so here we go let's get into our conversation with maurice cherry okay Maurice, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is going to be exciting. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. In fact, you probably don't because it's five years ago. But I saw you speak <laughs> at Facebook five years ago. <laughs> I remember that. Really? I remember that. I uh, I closed out the design lecture series there. That's right. And I came up, I I came up afterwards. Actually, it might have been in 2016. Um, I came up afterwards. and I was like, yo, we should have you on design details. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. 
And uh, here we are, four years later. What's up? <laughs> Timely as ever. Oh, man. So uh, I have gotten to meet you and see you talk. But uh, for people who haven't gotten to see you talk, uh, maybe if you could just intro yourself, what you're working on right now, and uh, yeah, who you are. Sure. So I'm Maurice Cherry. I am currently unemployed hey. uh, which is which is actually a very uh we can get into that in the interview this is a interesting time to not be working yeah. uh but prior to that i used to work at a a software startup called glitch as their senior creative strategist uh my background is a little bit all over the place i have a bachelor's degree in math master's degree in telecommunications management i ran my own design studio mm -hmm. for 9 years called lunch and uh i am the founder and host of Revision Path, mm -hmm. which is a podcast where I interview black designers, developers, and digital creatives from all over the world. Yes. Yeah. And uh, just coincidentally, we both crossed episode 350 last week. I don't know if you knew that. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. Like, we hit 350. I think we started, <laughs> you started before we did, uh, well, before Brian and Bryn did, but they were doing like double episodes every week for a little while. So yeah, we're now we're basically caught up. That's crazy. I tried doing double episodes. I think it was near the end of maybe 2016. And that's a lot. So it's too much. <laughs> it's a yeah. lot to try to do two in a week. Oh man. Okay. So, well, maybe we should jump in with, with what's going on right now. Uh, yeah, you said you're unemployed and obviously, well, actually, maybe not obviously for future listeners, but we're in the middle of, you know, a global pandemic. And I don't know if that plays into it, but yeah, what's going on with you right now? Yeah, so I've been uh, unemployed now for about a month. I was laid off right before Memorial Day. Mm. And uh, yeah, this is an interesting time to kind of not be working. I mean, prior to the layoffs at, at work, I was kind of going full steam ahead on some projects we were in the middle of producing a podcast uh, for my former employer, and then it all just kind of stopped. Um, and so this is really the first time in my professional career where I can take a break and like really catch my breath without any consequence uh, in terms of, you know, not being able to pay bills or there being some issue with my finances or anything like that. This is the first time where I can really stop and think about what's my next step going to be. What is it that I want to do next and not have to think or worry or rush out to try to find out what my next gig is going to be or where I'm going to work next. So that's kind of what's been been on my mind lately. I've just been like taking calls mm -hmm. with people. Companies have reached out. I've been reaching out to people, catching up with folks. It's been a very uh, recuperative and therapeutic time right now. Despite everything going on out there. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Therapeutic in one way, uh, scary and terrifying in another. Right, and, right. Well, tell me more about what you're thinking. Like, as you're talking to people, what are you looking to do next? What sounds interesting? Uh, what kind of problems do you want to work on? So I'm looking more at, like, creative strategy. I mean, okay. I was very, you know, blessed at the time that I was working at Glitch to kind of have my hand on a lot of different things. So the work that I did spanned... Uh, business development, marketing, media. I was doing audio production. I was working on video. I was even leading a team at a certain time. So I had a chance to kind of do a lot of different things all within one structure. So the creative strategist title is kind of a catch-all, uh, but essentially being able to serve as a company's like creative expert to help them out with storytelling for their brand and things of that nature, setting up different opportunities to tell the story of what it is that they do and how they help their customers. I found that I really, really, really like that. And I'm 
also really good at it, which helps. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm finding that's what I am wanting to go into more. It's kind of an offshoot of the work that I did back when I had my studio uh, called Lunch. So I had a small team uh, of about eight or nine people, distributed team. And we were doing, you know, web development and graphic design and things of that nature. But I kind of always would just come in and just help the client with like brainstorming on ideas and on concepts and helping them kind of see the value of what it is that they can bring to, you know, their business through the power of design. So I'm finding that I'm gravitating a lot more towards almost like a, it almost feels almost like I'm teaching in a way, but I like that Mm. a lot more than kind of the nuts and bolts of like really getting in the editor and working. I mean, I could do that. Uh, but that's not really what is exciting me at the moment. What's exciting me is kind of the overall like strategy of a business or a project and seeing that through. I see. And that's not management or, or would it technically be management? Um, I mean, it could be management. Uh, it's funny because like I, my title was was senior creative strategist, but we didn't have any junior creative strategists. So <laughs> um, uh-huh. I mean, it could it could be management. I have you know, I've got management skills, but I would imagine probably within a company, it'd be maybe more of like a senior IC type of position, I would think. Got it. That's that's how I'm thinking it would. I mean, you know, different companies have different hierarchies and such, but I feel like at least with, uh, with Glitch, even though I was on the marketing team, I kind of operated mostly as like a senior IC. Not to jump around too much here, but I, I was reading some of your past interviews and you, you had, it seems maybe a similar moment a long time ago when uh, you worked at at and uh, from what I could gather when you left, you left and it maybe wasn't the best work experience. I don't know if you want to get into that, but it, you I can get into it. <laughs> well, what I guess I also suppose what I'm more interested in is you said you got some back pay and that back pay allowed you to launch your own company. Yes. I'm curious if you get, yeah, the same vibes now like do you feel like that's possibly something you could do like restart the agency or is that off the table oh no oh no (laughs) i do not want to go back into entrepreneurship (laughs) um i mean don't get me wrong it's great i you know the nine years that i did it uh are years that i would never ever ever try to like erase or anything like that Mm -hmm. but i know how much stress it is and especially at this current time in history where things are already super stressful i don't want to add to that with the sort of like, you know, eat what you kill sort of mentality and and modality that goes with being an entrepreneurship. I could do it. I choose not to. I prefer <laughs> to work within the, at least the relatively safe confines of a well-funded company. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Thank you. I know what you mean. It's just like different kinds of stress, but there's like stress working at a company is still very comfortable stress, I think. Yeah. Unless it's like a very young startup. Like if it's an established organization, there's at least a safety net where mm-hmm. certain parts of your brain can kind of turn off and you can actually just refocus those on the work itself. Maybe the work is stressful, that's, but at least it's not these other things. Well, I, I think also now, you know, one thing that's probably different about the workplace is just the increased um, possibility of working remotely. I mean, 10 years ago, there certainly were not as many remote positions available. Neither were companies even open to having remote workers. And then now I think exacerbated by the pandemic, companies are starting to consider it because people have had to work from home for the past few months because of lockdowns and wherever they happen to be located. 
now companies are like, well, maybe we shouldn't reopen the offices and maybe we'll continue this work from home. Now it's no longer, I think, an experiment. Now I think people are actually putting it into practice. Yeah. So that actually opens up, I think, for a lot of people, the possibility of, you know, better work or different work or varied and interesting work uh, because it's no longer really based on location. And if you can handle that, are you cool with remote work? Oh, yeah. I ran my team uh, at lunch for nine years remotely, and then all my work that I did at Glitch was remote. <laughs> you're pro. Okay, you're ready. Yeah. Can we talk about lunch a little bit? Because uh, it has a cool beginning. Like You had this moment where you basically just took this giant bet on yourself, and it ended up becoming this agency, but it also spun out all these sub-projects, I guess. I don't know. I'm trying to interpret. I was, I was basically building this web of like all of your work. And it's not actually exactly <laughs> clear what is the sort of hierarchy, but uh, could I say like revision path, 28 days of the web, year of T, like are those things all part of lunch uh, or were those like just offshoot side projects? I would say currently with the way that I have lunch kind of structured is that it is the the umbrella for all of my creative projects. Yeah. So like I'm not seeing clients anymore. I'm not doing any outward facing client work or anything like that but all the projects that i've created um black web blog awards revision path year of t 20 days of the web recognize etc they just sort of all fall under that umbrella gotcha got it okay yeah well so then then take me back to starting lunch what was what was that like starting your own agency and like how do you even do that how do you know where to start okay so we'll go back to Let's see, November 2008. So I was super hyped up about Obama getting elected. Um, mm-hmm. And this was around the time when I was leaving AT&T. I basically was kind of just biding my time until the deliberation came through about my back pay. And then once the back pay came and it hit my account, I quit the same day. I just announced it in our regular status meeting that this was going to be my last day mm-hmm. and didn't look back at all. Uh those first few months were very tricky because I think I had all of the the uh, the hype and adrenaline to want to start, but then uh-huh. really didn't have any clients. It's so interesting. Like I had folks that were telling me, "Yeah, when once you open your studio, give me a call. Let me know. I'll be ready to go." Um, and then once I kind of had things open, that didn't happen. Like people no longer needed the work, or they were reconsidering, or they wanted work done for like a really comically low price. Uh, and so those first few months were, you know, really just, I, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to call them lean, yeah. uh, but they were very, very rough. Like I was doing like some WordPress work. I was doing a little bit of, you know, email newsletter templating work and stuff like that. And people just didn't see the need to pay a decent price for that sort of work. Mm-hmm. Um, And also, I think to my credit, I didn't know how much I needed to educate the clients on the value of the work. I sort of figured if they were coming to me, then they knew what they wanted. And it was, I should have been treating it more like a conversation and less like a transaction. I see. So in the early days, I really didn't get that. Uh, Fast forward a few months to around, I think it was like January of 2019, maybe December 2018. No, it was January. It was January 2019. 2019. And uh, yeah, and uh. I got a random request from someone from Meetup to to meet at a Panera Bread in Buckhead here, you know, just to kind of like talk and introduce themselves. And there was this guy named uh, 
John Birdsong, who now is one of my like closest friends. Um, and John was like a fresh grad out of University of Georgia. And, you know, he was telling me, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I saw you in some of these like design groups and things like meetup design groups. And he's like, I, I was wondering if I should learn HTML or if I should learn Dreamweaver. Oh, boy. <laughs> I hope you said the right thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, Dreamweaver, well, I mean, you 100%. probably should learn. Uh, I was like, you probably should learn HTML as the language because Dreamweaver is just like the tool. And, you know, we kind of talked about that. But then he was mentioning that uh, him and a friend of his had this project where they were looking to kind of do some, you know, potential design and like social media work for some local candidates. Uh, the mayoral race actually happened to be that year. And it's the first set of municipal races that happened after Obama was elected. And so you had these politicians that clearly saw how design and social media worked for Obama and wanted to know how they could make it work for them. And like, there's no playbook on this stuff. Mm -hmm. There's no, there are no blog posts. There are no courses you can take. It's basically flying by the seat of your pants. And they were looking to me, John and his and his friend Jay, they were looking to me to kind of be the the brains of this, I guess, in terms of being able to actually like talk the language and do the work. And so we all met up and, you know, they were telling me the situation about how they had, you know, some candidates that they were potentially going to be working with because Jay um, and his wife were kind of in with the political scene in Atlanta. And I'm thinking, eh, I mean, if it's money, I'll do it because, again, <laughs> operating very leanly, yeah. I'm like, you know what? This sounds this sounds interesting. Sure. Why not? I'll do it. Um, and so we we formed together this little company called <laughs> it's called relate media group because we're trying to relate mm. media to anyway so it's relate media group and um i remember we met up with one of the campaign managers or one of the candidates at her house um it's a really nice swanky house in this part of uh atlanta called ansley park and we met up and you know we're sort of learning about the candidate and what it was that she was trying to accomplish. Essentially, she was in the race before she dropped out because her parents got sick and now she was looking to get back into the race. And so they were looking on how they could do like a really strong, like relaunch into the campaign, even though she's sort of launching like in the middle of the season near the end of it. Like she's trying to relaunch, I think in like March or April and election day is in November so we had a lot of ground to make up very, very quickly. And, you know, they're talking all this stuff back and forth. And, you know, she's asking me, like, well, what school did you go to? And I mentioned that I went to, to Morehouse, which is a, a historically black college university, all male school, pretty prestigious overall in the world, but particularly in the black community. Mm -hmm. And that just, like, impressed the shit out of her. She was like, wait, you went to Morehouse? I was like, yeah, I went to Morehouse, majored in math and, you know, kind of gave her the chronology of what I've done up to uh -huh. that point. And it was like, that kind of sold her on, yeah, we'll, we'll work with you guys. Now we're all, I, I, well, I don't know how young Jay and, and John were, but like, I was a kid, maybe like almost 30, 28, 29, something like that. Uh, and um, just a baby. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> older than Brian. And, and they were, yeah. And they were thinking of like, Oh yeah, we're going to go into, um, you know, we're going to go into this campaign and we're going to show them how to use social media and the web so they can, get votes. Of course, that's not really how it works, but we didn't know that and neither did they. But I think they had that implicit trust in us because we were young and used the internet. <laughs> You're young. You know Twitter, right? You can get me elected. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, was tw yeah, Twitter was a thing back then. Yeah. And I remember, you know, us setting up 
all the stuff for the candidate. She had a MySpace page. Oh, she yeah. had a Flickr page. This is like pre-Instagram. She had, uh, oh, yeah. what all did we set her up on? Meetup, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, you know. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the, some, the Some old, few. some new. Uh, some good relics in there. Yeah. And as and so as the campaign sort of uh, went along, I mean, this is this is during a time when, again, a lot of people were really trying to see what these these types of candidates were going to do with the web and social media in this sort of new time. Because now everyone was trying to be like Obama, like every campaign used Gotham, <sighs> every campaign wanted something like kind of slick and <laughs> skeuomorphic of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, well, I mean, is that really going to work? Not to mention you having to sort of convince the candidate and the staff that like social media followers do not equal votes. Mm -hmm. Like it's just another tool in the campaign toolbox. But like we can't take your 2800 Twitter followers and guarantee that to be 2800 votes like that's it's not going to work that way. And the campaign sort of changed several times throughout the duration of of the, you know, the time that we were running. Eventually, things narrowed down to only a few candidates. It was. Uh, the candidate that I was working for, Lisa Borders, it was uh, Mary Norwood, and it was Kasim Reed. And so I think the the final time that the campaign shifted over, uh, Lisa got a new campaign manager who um, many people know now, Stacey Abrams. Okay. So Stacey Abrams was a campaign manager, and I got to be in the headquarters every day, you know, get to talk with Stacey, get to yeah. talk with Lisa, get to talk with the rest of the crew. And... I think at that point, the campaign started to see like, okay, out of these three, Maurice is the one that kind of knows his stuff. Like Maurice knows what he's doing. John is good with volunteering and Jay just comes and picks up the check. And so (laughs) eventually that caused, you know, and I'll, you know, just to be honest, like it did cause a rift at the time between the three of us because we could easily tell like who was actually working and who was just, Mm. you know, honestly just showing up to get the check to deposit it. Classic group project, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and we were splitting the money between us, but like clearly, you know, some of us were doing more work than others. Uh-huh. Uh, fast forward to election day. Um, unfortunately, our candidate did not win. Uh, she came in third place. There ended up being a runoff. Uh, Kasim between uh, Kasim Reed and Mary Norwood. Kasim's campaign wanted me to work for them. I declined just because I, at this point in time, I had seen how the sausage was made in terms of Atlanta politics, mm-hmm. and I didn't really want any part of it. Like I enjoyed the actual work of working in the campaign. I didn't enjoy all the like, there's so much backstage politics stuff and I I just didn't want to deal with it. Um, And so I, you know, politely declined, wished them well. Kasim did end up winning. He ended up becoming mayor. And then we dissolved that business, I think, that December. <laughs> like we started up in February, dissolved it in December. Got and it, uh, yeah. I still keep in touch with John. I don't really see Jay that much often. <laughs> Cash um, checks somewhere. Yeah. But the interesting thing was, you know, after that campaign, I had clients coming to me like hand over fist for my studio. Yep. So I was like, oh, well, now like all of these people and companies that supported Lisa during her campaign, they're oh. asking her, you know, well, who did your website mm-hmm. and who did your social media? And I mean, even the local paper here, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as well as our local alt-weekly Creative Loafing reported on how well like the Lisa Borders campaign was in terms of the website and how they interacted on social media. And Lisa was just saying, yeah, that was Maurice. Here's his information. So after 2009, like the studio was just, I had so much work. I had way too much work to handle on my own, which is when I really started to then be able to kind of branch out and bring people on and really expand things out 
to try to meet the demand that was coming just from that campaign. That's fantastic. And so then what happened from there with, with the business? It sounds like it was the tipping point. Now you got all this work. Did that yeah. pull you into politics further or was it all sorts of work? And then, yeah, what, what changed after that? It mostly pulled me into doing political work and working on nonprofits. Okay. Um, there were other politicians that wanted, a, you know, basically they would come to me and say, we want the Lisa package. <laughs> we want what you did with Lisa. And I'm like, well, that's, I mean, that's a different kind of budget and time commitment and I don't have the the staff to pull that off, but we can talk about doing something similar to that. Many nonprofits that supported uh, Lisa also came and I was able to do work for them on a number of different things. And they were mostly health nonprofits, but I worked also with uh, the Atlanta Street Food Coalition, which at the time was working to try to get uh, legislation passed to allow food trucks on the streets, um, working with a number of like educational nonprofits. Mm. Um, and so I, I think by around 2011, I had a few good retainer clients where I had like guaranteed checks coming in every yeah. month. And so because of that, that allowed me to be super picky about the other types of work that I would take on, um, but also allowed me the freedom to do other projects such as Revision Path. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's what I wanted to ask next. Somewhere in here, you, you decided to start a podcast. What happened? Yeah. So five years into the studio, I was uh, looking at basically trying to revisit an idea that I initially had back in 2006. So um, I founded, this was back in 2005, actually, I founded the Black Weblog Awards, which was an online event that would showcase black bloggers, video bloggers, and podcasters. And in 2006, the second year that I did the the awards, I introduced the best blog design category because I knew a lot of people that were designing blogs like built on movable type. Um, some of them were building them based on WordPress, Expression Engine, other types of CMSs that were doing like really great work. But, you know, nobody was really recognizing the work that they were doing. And so I wanted to be able to do that. And at the time, I wanted to do some kind of platform that spoke to black designers. However, I was uh, working full time at AT&T. I was doing the Black Weblog Awards in my spare time. Plus, I was in graduate school then. So I was like, I don't have the time to pull all this stuff off. Mm. And it really wasn't, you know, until seven years later, five years into doing the studio, that I had the space to really sort of make it happen. And mm. so initially, it was me and um, another designer that were sort of coming up with the concept and, and trying to come up with different names for it and everything. Uh, unfortunately, he kind of bowed out at the at the 11th hour. And so I still kind of kept things moving forward with it. And I chose the name Revision Path. And initially it was going to be a platform that did sort of long form creative interviews, maybe something similar to like the great discontent at the time or something mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. where you've got these like nice meaty profiles about designers. The only issue was that it was just me. And oftentimes just getting people to respond was sort of the biggest challenge because they were like, wait a minute, who are you? What are you doing? Why do you want to talk to me? Um, so there wasn't that, uh, I don't want to say name value, but certainly people were very distrustful. Um, and so it was hard for me initially to really get interviews to people to even want to talk to me because they didn't know who I was, why I was doing this, what the motivation was behind it. And despite me explaining it, they were still like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to be out there like that, you know? And so, wait, can we can we dig into that a little bit more? Because I I do yeah, find sure. that interesting. And you know, in in all of the history of design details, at least up until the first two fifty six, 
statistically, of all the people we asked to come on the show, the people who said no the most were minorities and women and people of color. Like those are the people who said, nah, I don't really feel comfortable uh, coming on the podcast. So it's funny that you experienced the same thing and curious how you overcame it or were you able to nudge people like, hey, you know, there's all these benefits. Here's how it's going to work. Like it's going to be super comfortable. Or did you find people just kind of planted their feet and didn't really want to, to record? I'll, I'll be 100% honest. I still have that problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like seven years later, it's still uh, it's still a toss up if I reach out to someone, if I'll hear from them at all or if I'll hear, you know, something saying yes or no. So it's still sort of like that. Do you have a playbook like response if, if someone says no or, or you can maybe sense that they're a little uncomfortable? Do you have some material that can nudge them in the well, not the right direction, but hopefully in a direction where maybe they push their comfort boundary a little bit? I don't know. You know, it depends on the guest. Sometimes I, I'll say this in the past. I did used to kind of really try to convince people to come on the show like, yeah, you should really do it. You should talk about your work. You're doing these great things. Uh, now I've stopped doing that. If someone says they don't want to be on the show, I'm just like, okay, I don't even bother with it. Trust them. Mainly because, well, I think mainly because at this point, you know, now seven years out from starting it, I have a a long list of potential guests. So if there's someone that says they don't want to come on or they've got, you know, their druthers about doing it, I'll just move on to the next person. Got it. Okay. But yeah, initially, initially though, there was that sort of hesitation uh, for people to even want to, to sort of get their story out. And I want to say, I think that it was because of two things. Um, one, they just didn't know who I was and what this platform was about and what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. So even if I explained it and they went to the website, they didn't really see anything that convinced them that this was something that they wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, and I mostly encountered this very early on with Revision Path, uh, there were people that just didn't want to be on because I only talked to black designers. They hmm. felt like it was uh, it was too exclusionary. They um, they they consider themselves like a designer first and black second, which is a whole that's a whole other topic. Um, but I was just you know these were people initially that I would try to convince, and then now I'm just like all right, fine, whatever. I'll just I'll move on to the to the next person. Did you ever find any of their arguments convincing? Like it seems like you've had this this motto or this mission from the beginning, but having the people who you want to interview kind of push back on the whole premise of the podcast. Was that convincing or did you second guess yourself on that at all? Um, I think early on, I didn't, I didn't second guess myself on what I was trying to do in terms of the, the motto of, or the mission I would say of revision path. I think I was trying to see it from their perspective as like, why is it a bad thing that I want to talk to you because you're a black designer because on their end, they're thinking, oh, you just only want to talk to me because I'm black. And I'm like, well, yeah, but also because you're a designer, like yeah. it's both things, not just one of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you know, look, people have complicated relationships with their own association with, uh, well, I don't know, that's kind of a sticky thing to get into. But I found in my experience, like uh, there's a saying like all, all, uh <laughs> All skin folk and kin folk, essentially, meaning that hmm. like just because um, someone is of your same, you know, race doesn't necessarily mean that there's that level of solidarity there. Hmm. Um, and I learned honestly just through personal experience quickly on, like everybody's not going to be down for the cause, and that's fine, you know. 
um, you can't come with me, but if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. Uh, and so early on, I did get that that sort of pushback from people about, um, you know, from other black designers, you know, basically saying that they didn't want to be on here because they were black. They wanted to be on because of uh, the merit of their work. And I'm like, well, we're going to talk about your work, too. But it's like, how, how did I find you? You probably have great work. right? Yeah. 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 It's an intersection thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, again, in those early days, I did try to convince some of those people. And then now I just I just don't. If they feel that way. Um, I just keep moving forward or what will happen sometimes is that people will say, wait, wait, I'm not ready yet. Like mm. come back and interview me in a year or come back and interview me when I've quote unquote made it. Uh, and yeah, that's an imposter go. syndrome thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it could be an imposter syndrome thing. I often let them know that I want to interview them where they're at yeah. because I try to reach people for the show at different parts of their creative journey. Yeah. Like I've had, students but i've also had ceos and like captains of industry and well like super well-known designers so i try to reach everybody with the show um but again i think that's also just them not necessarily being familiar with what i'm trying to do or you know it could be an imposter syndrome thing i try not to get too deep into the psychology of what someone else might be thinking about when they don't want to be on the show uh because if they don't want to be on the show, then that actually makes my job a lot easier. Then I can just go to the next person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. It's good you have a list that long too that you can you can uh, just keep going through. Yeah, I've been I've been sort of putting the list together piece by piece like since 2013. So there's probably around at this point maybe about three thousand ish nice. folks no. on there. No, yeah. what? So you have yeah. okay at this pace. Yeah, uh, what is that? how many years is that? Sixty, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, you're gonna be recording your vision path on your deathbed. <laughs> oh, just, oh my god, morbid as fuck. but uh, I mean, if we're gonna get through three thousand, you know, better yeah. start cranking cranking that rate up. <laughs> I mean, and you know, there's new designers come. You know, they're yeah. here every day. There's new people that that pop up. So. You know, it's just a matter of me kind of going, you know, kind of going through the list, essentially. So, yeah. Um, I want to jump ahead a little bit because when we first or when I reached out to you to see if you wanted to come on the show, I, I asked you, you know, what topics sound interesting? What do you want to talk about? I mostly would just like to, to jam about design and like figure out how people got here. And you mentioned that you wanted to talk about uh, what's happening with diversity in the design industry right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as part of this, I went back and like I watched your talks, read all your blog posts, like started digging through your work. And I, I wanted, I, I wrote down some questions, but I think maybe it'd be important to just start with like, at what point did you really become interested in this sort of topic? Because it seems like maybe from 2015 on, this has really been a drum that you've been beating uh, to great effect, like giving talks and speaking at, at tech companies and, and writing posts and doing interviews all about this diversity problem in the tech industry. So how did that start for you? So it uh, it really started, I mean, back when I was a working designer. I mean, I my first professional design gig was in 2005. I was working uh, for the state of Georgia at the Georgia World uh, Congress Center, which is um, sort of our big state-owned convention center here. It's also made up of the Centennial Olympic Park and the former Georgia Dome. Uh, and like the marketing slash PR staff there was pretty small, but, uh, at the time I was, I was not the only person of color. 
well, I was not the only black person. Let me say that. Um, I wasn't the only black person, but I was the only black person that was doing design work. Right. And so as the makeup of the department changed and as sort of honestly my my roles and responsibilities change, I could I could feel the discrimination against me like it was palpable. And these were uh, sort of feelings that I shared with peers of mine who were also designers in house somewhere that were the only black person on their team. And this feeling kind of kept going even at different companies that I worked for. So after the Georgia World Congress Center, I worked for AT&T for a little while. Um, and I wasn't the only black person on the team, but you know how companies will have these pipelines, right? Like there's certain schools you go to uh -huh. where it's a, it's a given that if you take this course at this school, it's like a pipeline to work at this company. HCI Carnegie Mellon is right. like and, the one. And, and so for this particular, um, at AT&T, most of the people that worked there um, were graduates from the Art Institute of Atlanta. Yeah. And so I didn't go to arts design school, so I didn't go there. I didn't fit into that pipeline. So there was already that barrier of exclusion of not being a part of this sort of alumni group. Yeah. Um, so while I wasn't the only black person on my team, I was the only black person on my team who didn't go to this school. So now not only are the white designers not talking to me, but the black ones aren't either. Yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, well, that's a different kind of feeling. And I remember my first day, um, they sort of gave me a tour around the floor and one of the designers asked me like, oh, did you go to Art Institute? And I was like, no, I went to, to Morehouse. And she's like, oh, uh, where's that? And I'm like, well, if you look out the window uh, <laughs> and you see that far green roof, like that's Morehouse. She's like, oh, it's in Atlanta. Mm. And I'm like, okay, this is bizarre. How do you live and work in Atlanta and not know about Morehouse College? Whatever, mm. you know. Um, so I could, I was feeling like even that kind of weird discrimination there. And then I worked at WebMD for a while and it was very much the same type of feeling but these were feelings that are being shared among peers of mine also. Like they're working in these companies and they're clearly feeling different. They're feeling some level of detachment or ostracization of the team. And it doesn't have to do with their quality of work. It just has to do with who they are as a person with something that they cannot change. Right. Um, and so I think once I was doing revision path and really started to talk to people, I saw just how common this was across the spectrum. Like, it's not just me and my friends that are going through this. This is like a problem that a lot of people are facing. And really, as I started doing more research into this, I saw just how widespread uh, the issue was in terms of black designers entering into this industry and then having these sort of feelings of being excluded or downplayed or dealing with microaggressions, et cetera. Like, this is this is. This is something that has been going on at least since the 60s. Right. So like me picking it up and really kind of doing this presentation in 2015, it's almost like someone's passing the baton to me to now also talk about why this is a persistent issue and what are some of the ways that we can try to like look at it and fix it. Because uh, oftentimes I think when people ask the question, where are the black designers? They're asking that because they're only looking in a place where they find their current designers, which are probably not black. Yeah. So maybe if you're only looking at, you know, the graduating class of RISD or MICA mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, I don't see any black designers there, then you might think, oh, well, there's just no black designers. But not taking into account the different psychological, 
socioeconomic reasons, there may not be black designers in the program that have made it through that far to graduate. Like there's a whole lot of issues that sort of lead up to even just that point, even if you're able to go to that kind of school in the first place, Mm -hmm. to be put into that pipeline or into that level of visibility where these types of companies will see you, like there's a lot of hurdles that you have to go through to even get to that. So by the time I really came to the issue and talking about it in 2015, like I'm late in a way, but also I share all of these feelings that people are talking about relating to sort of what they have to deal with you know, either on a macro level or a micro level with just being a black designer in the industry. One of the things that came up in your talk and, you know, you mentioned uh, Mo Woods who runs the Interact Project and mm-hmm. and you talk about education and the pipelines and it's like really there's just a fundamental problem with how we even tell people that design is a thing. Not not even to mention that it's a lucrative industry. Like you can make money being a designer mm-hmm. or even that design is broader than just graphic design, which was certainly a misconception that I had when I was young. I was like, oh, design is like posters. Uh-huh. I didn't realize that it was so much more than that, right? Right. And anyway, so you, you've become a part of the the community you are teaching and then you actually ended up teaching it. Uh, I wrote down, you, were, you taught at DeVry and at uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. So I'm curious, what what is like being on the educator side of this equation? Like, did you encounter people who just still didn't really understand what design was? Like, how do you get over this hurdle of of design maybe not having a place in popular culture? Uh, certainly in in communities where design isn't, I don't know, all around them or visible or talked about. Yeah. So I, I want to clear that up just a little bit. So I taught a it was really like a seminar. At SCAD. So I wasn't like a, a paid faculty member. Now, sure, sure, sure. With, with, with DeVry, it was a little bit different because I was teaching uh, as an adjunct. And that was so odd because I was teaching design in the business department. Like I was teaching a, a business information systems course. So these were students that not only didn't really want to take the course, but they also just felt like this is not something that I need to know as a business student. So there's already this level of reluctance to even like grok the subject, let alone try to approach it in any sort of way that would make teaching it easy or even <laughs> doable in some in some instances. Like there were some people that were like, I'm going to be a business major. Why do I need to know about HTML? I'm like, oh, that's a good question. Um, why don't you ask your advisor? Because this is part of your degree program. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think what I found is that it's it's still difficult, I think, for parents to see that design is just a a field that they can go into because of the lack of just examples out in the world. Like you can see basketball players, you can see engineers, you can see doctors, you can see that sort of thing. Uh, But you don't necessarily see designers or artists in that same level of prominence or, you know, even visibility in the public sphere. It almost seems to something that's more specialized. Like, yes, we know that there are fine artists out there. Everything that we use and encounter has been designed by someone in some capacity. Mm-hmm. However, there's some level of it's like a like a screen almost between the final project and the person who made it. Like I think it was I think it's really interesting how Marvel has now sort of standardized sitting through the credits mm-hmm. because now <laughs> uh-huh. you kind of get to see all of the people that go into this creative work that you just consumed mm-hmm. and it's not just this thing that just appeared on a screen. Yeah. Like Hundreds of people have put in hours into this, you know, but I still don't think that's something which is really uh, visible in a way. 
And it's, I mean, it's an educational issue because it, it goes even further than college. I mean, it goes to high school. It goes probably, you know, maybe even to like middle school and elementary school. It's just not something that ends up being taught as being a viable career option. So maybe it's on the parents to do it. Maybe it's on the guidance counselors to do it. It's sort of a multifaceted uh, issue. And in terms of trying to tackle it, I mean, I don't know if doing it just from the collegiate level is uh, is sufficient. I think right. from yeah, people who I've talked, yeah, yeah, because from the people who I've talked to on the on the podcast, I mean, some people fell into it after college. Like, you know, I mean, look at me. My degree is in math. Yeah, I, didn't, yeah. <laughs> I didn't do any. Well, I'm not going to say I didn't do any design in college because we had to certainly like draw conic solids and 3D models and all that sort of stuff. But none of that was considered design. It was just sure. math, you know. Mm-hmm. So some people just fell into it. Also, I think art kind of still tends to be seen as a hobby. It's something that we sort of start as children. You know, we do finger painting and all that sort of stuff. And then art gets kind of subsequently phased out the higher you go up in your educational level. So by the time you're in middle school or in high school, like you're not really doing art classes. Maybe you are, but there's a good chance you're probably not. So this thing that you do that might be just a hobby is not even seen as something which you can lucratively turn into a career because there's no there's no visibility in the public sphere behind the work and also I don't think that the schools are really showing that this is something that you can do and can go into. So it's a it's a big issue. It's more than just kind of one way to sort of look at it. For, from your point of view is this getting better? Like in, no. in okay. <laughs> well, there we I don't go. think it's getting Shit. better. <laughs> I think what's I think what's uh, getting better is the awareness of the issue, but I don't think the issue as a whole is getting better. How have those conversations evolved? Like, you know, I saw you talk at Facebook in I don't know, maybe 2016, and mm-hmm. it, I, I like getting perspectives from people like you who've gotten to talk at lots of different tech companies over the years. Like, how have those conversations evolved? Are people asking different questions now than they were four years ago? Or is it, do you feel like you're just repeating the same thing over and over? It honestly, it honestly feels like a regression. Really? I think it's gotten worse. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're, so, so we're recording this on June 20th. Yeah. 2020. Juneteenth was yesterday. Mm -hmm. It, It appears just based on the number of statements I've seen on Twitter, on the web in general, now, a lot of people have just woken up to the fact that Black Lives Matter and that Juneteenth is a holiday. Uh, and so a lot of the conversations that I've been hearing, and I would say this is even prior to this week, uh, it's almost like a, a regression back to like not even one on one levels, more like remedial 099, you know, types of, of, uh, of conversations. And it's like there's more material out here now than there is before for you to get educated about this. Like I've seen so many fucking reading lists and all (laughs) kinds of resource lists out there that did not exist five years ago. Like there's more stuff for you to choose from. And yet the questions I'm getting or the, the queries I'm getting are even more basic than what I got back then, you know, like, yeah, I loved the, I mean, there was like the, the wave of tweets about reading lists. And then there was the follow on wave of like, Hey, by the way, you actually like have to read the books. You can't just buy the reading yeah. list. Yeah. And it's not even so much reading because I mean, just because you read it doesn't necessarily mean that you have comprehended it and that you've digested it and that you've used it. Yeah. I mean, if you just started reading up about this stuff this week, you're probably not going to be well equipped to make change 
right away. I think it's certainly a start. It's a start in the right direction. Um, but it's it's been a little disorienting to see how the, the conversation has regressed in many ways. I see that on Twitter. But what about, I don't know, are tech companies, the conversations you're having there, is it, is it the same? I guess I'm trying to distinguish between like the general population conversation and then more tech specific. Is there any nuance between those or do you feel like the same regressions happening at, at tech companies? I, I think it's probably staying around the same. So what's happening is that uh, companies are seeing now that, oh, well, if we want to try to find black designers right out of college, then maybe we should look at HBCUs, which, duh, you probably should. Yeah. Uh, but also what's happening, and, and I mean, I went to an HBCU, so I've seen this like firsthand, is that you can't just take, take, take and not put back into the system yeah. or put back into the school. So you have to kind of form a partnership. Uh, one one uh, gripe that I heard from a certain company that I won't name was that they went and talked to uh, kids at HBCUs and they're like, well, the problem is just that they're just not at the same level. They're just not at the same level as if I went to, you know, speak to kids at RISD or at MICA. And I'm like, well, why do you think that is? You know, honestly, in a way, trying to trap them into saying something stupid, but uh, <laughs> essentially them saying like, well, you know, it's just they're not they're not learning the same things and 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 they don't have the same resources. And I'm, and I'm just, you know, kind of I'm like Mindy on Animaniacs, like why? Like trying to get deeper into why they think that is. And the reality of it is there's a lack of resources that are often going into these schools. I mean, HBCUs, I think, across the board are generally pretty underfunded. My alma mater might be an outlier in that, um, but they tend to be underfunded. And so they're already not working with the same level of resources as a school that may have, you know, a multi-million dollar endowment and that has famous alumni that are, you know, putting back into the school. So what I've been telling companies is that if you're really serious about this and you've, you know, built a relationship with an HBCU, like find a way to give back to the school, like maybe help them with curriculum. Maybe embed one of your workers there as an educator. So then you can teach them what it is that they need to know. So then when they get out there in the market, they are better prepared. And so lamenting the fact that they're not at the same level as a school that's operating on a completely different playing field. Yeah. And have you seen any response from, from this call to action? No, hmm. <laughs> I haven't. I mean, it's, I think once they, I don't know, I, I'm completely speculating here, but I, I feel like once they realize, like, oh, we have to, we have to work at this. <laughs> the actual it becomes, it, yeah, it becomes less of a, um, it becomes less of a thing that they want to do. They're like, oh, well, I guess we could do that, but if we have to put in all that work, I mean, wh why don't we just go over to SVA? Yeah, let's just go to SVA. Like, like it's, I don't know if they're necessarily saying that in full, but certainly that's the sentiment that I get is that, oh, we have to like build relationships with schools. We can't just come to a career fair and, you know, it's not a field of dream situation. Like they get a booth at a career fair at an HBCU and think, oh, we're going to get so many <laughs> talented candidates. I mean, yeah. maybe you will and maybe you won't and you probably won't. And that's honestly just a circumstance of the differing, you know, level of curriculum that's being offered. Well, let's talk about what's happening then adjacent to the tech companies around like events, podcasting, writing. Has that side of the industry do you think that that is an appropriate maybe response or measure here? Like, okay, if the tech companies aren't going to jump in, then it's 
up to the rest of the industry. Like we got to start writing shit and like doing what you're doing, which is podcasting every week and like putting people out there for other people to, you know, have a role model or learn something tactical. Like, is that the only response that you feel we have here? Or is there something else? I don't know if that's the only response, but I do think it's a start. I mean, like what, what I'm doing and certainly I think what other individuals are doing, like for example, uh, Mike Nichols with Umber Magazine, what Answer That Carol is doing with Creative Reaction Lab, what uh, Vernon Lockhart is doing in Chicago with Project Osmosis, what Maurice Woods is doing with Interact Project. Like, we're helping to contribute where we can, you know, to the overall industry. I mean, we're not all doing it at the same level, at the same place, but I think it's it's all kind of feeding into the system in a way. Um and of course, I think just also the increased visibility of seeing black designers at events or, or you know, featured at conferences or things like that. It's helping push the needle, move the needle a bit, I think. Um, but that kind of change in this industry, I think, is still going to it's still going to take a lot of work. I mean, the technology that we use changes so quickly, but the culture is still pretty stagnant. Um, right. Even in the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of change. Like if I think about what the the design community was like in 2010 versus now in 2020, certainly it's a lot less diverse, but like it took 10 years to get there. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's going to take another 10 years to get to an even greater level or, you know, that sort of thing. So I think as we continue with these efforts, it will help. And certainly with greater support from, you know, companies and agencies, et cetera, that are serious about this and wanting to help improve the issue that will only help, but it's going to take some time. You seem uh, optimistic. Am I interpreting your voice? I mean, you just sound friendly, <laughs> but I'm, is that optimistic or are you, where's your temperature on this? Are you, cause you've been giving these talks for years. Like how long yeah. do you want to keep doing this? Well, I mean, I'd say within this past week in particular, you know, there have just been other, you know, professional friends of mine, black professional designers, et cetera, that I've spoken to. And they've all had kind of the similar saying of how, like, this is an interestingly hopeful time. It is sort of disorienting, but also like, how long is this going to go on? Is this going to be something that will really be the spark for change in this industry? Or is this going to be like the ice bucket challenge where it just comes and goes? And then you're like, oh, remember when we were doing all this stuff with black designers in 2020? That was fun. And, you know, then it doesn't happen again. So um, I'm kind of taking a wait and see approach at yeah. this point. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, so, it's so odd because like that 2015 presentation, I mean... The fact that it's resurfaced now as it has, I I haven't looked at that thing <laughs> in years. And then all of a sudden it's popping up and people are like, what's your Venmo so I can send you money? I'm like, wait, what? I haven't. Well, I, I mean, now I'm going to update it for 2020. I guess that the cat's out of the bag there. there but um, I plan to update it um, along with a colleague of mine, Jacinda Walker, who has done like a tremendous amount of research and data into this particular issue around black designers in the industry. So I, I hope to have that done probably within the next couple of months or so, once I carve out time for it. But um, I'm glad that the conversation is continuing, but you know, as I spoke to earlier, it has been a continuing conversation. So it's sort of like we're passing the baton now to the next, you know, phase of how this conversation will go. And hopefully this will, this will improve things that will institute more change only time will tell at this point. Yeah. The uh, general lack of attention span for most people for most things scares me. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we, we've forgotten that COVID exists. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. The what global pandemic? You know, like I don't know it. I I I hear what you're saying with the hopefulness, and I've seen people talking about this. Like, it seems like there is something that, like a, a switch that flipped. But yeah, time will tell. I'm just I feel so nervous about the <laughs> the general lack of attention. I I think what is a bit different this time is just how many people are not only um, sort of awakening to this, but also starting to put initiatives and measures in place to sort of make some level of accountability happen. We're starting to see different industries move forward and come forth with saying, okay, you put out this Black Lives Matter statement, you're celebrating Juneteenth, here's what we need to see. Yeah, let's do let's do like an annual or like three months check in and see where that landed. Yeah. So like let's check in and see, you know, three months from now, a year from now, have things changed? Have things changed two years from now? Like I think we're gonna see more of that moving forward now that there's more people that are cognizant of the issue and are starting to like I said, put in those uh those kind of tent poles for accountability. So it's it's a time thing at this point. All we have to do is just I don't want to say wait it out. I mean there still has to be continued action towards this mm-hmm. but we won't really see the change immediately it's there's no way it's going to happen immediately um i mean that number that has been floating around about how the design industry or the graphic design industry is only three percent black designers that three percent number has floated around for like 10 years so <laughs> it's it's uh it's something that's just going to take time yeah I, i'm looking forward to your 2020 version of the talk then because yeah, yeah. when you sh- when you showed that slide that showed like RISD and scad had it was like two percent black five three five percent i was like holy mm-hmm. shit and I, mm-hmm. I one of my questions i wrote down I'm like do you think that's changed is it any better and i don't know if i don't want to put you on the spot with metrics but like how has that evolved are we actually seeing any macro level five-year yeah. improvements to these kinds of things further down the stack at like the education college high school level I'm going to see when I look at the data, like I, I know for say SCAD, I think it's always going to be pretty high one because it's in the South. Oh yeah. They were, they were 10, right? They were 10%. Yeah. They were like 10%. Yeah. Uh, they're in the South. They have campuses in other countries also. Um, and also I know particularly the, um, the SCAD campus in Savannah, they do recruiting like throughout the Caribbean too. So uh, part of it is just like location and scouting efforts on, on what's able to be done. But I know that there are some, HBCUs that have some, I wouldn't necessarily call it a pipeline, but it's certainly like a a link between the, that school and a more prominent design institution. Like, for example, um, there's a lot of graduates from Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia that end up at Pratt. So there's kind of a bit of a pipeline there. Um, Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi, for a while um, had a bit of a pipeline. I know Howard University I think still has their connection to Google uh, through their Howard West campus. So like you're starting to see okay. things like that happen, but it's not, I mean, it's certainly not, I think at a level where it's going to really greatly change the industry. It's just going to take time. Well, Hey, uh, Maurice, I want to do a time check. We're almost at an hour. Um, okay. Is there anything else that we should dig into on this subject? Um, We could talk about design podcasting. I'm so curious to hear from y'all standpoint, like how it's been, or, or sort of what the community looks like to you. Cause I, in my early days from doing revision path, I couldn't get shit from anybody from the design industry. Like I couldn't, I was sending out messages to people and people were like, I don't want to hear from this. We don't talk about race, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, 
Okay. And it wasn't until the guys from, uh, you, you remember On the Grid? Yeah. Yeah, I do remember. Yeah, with Matt McInerney uh, and, and uh, yeah. um, Dan Auer and Andy yeah. Mangold. Man, those guys are cool. But they they had me on their show twice. And like I feel like that really sort of put the work that I was doing in the general design industry. Because before then, I was, I was not getting any kind of... Uh, I was trying to work with people like saying like, Hey, if you need guests, I've got guests that I can recommend. And they're like, Oh, we don't really talk about race. I'm like, okay. I didn't mention that, but sure. <laughs> so, well, I, I guess I could speak a little more to this. I would say, so the first 256 episodes of design details were all interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I, I don't know exactly like how all of our, our numbers break down and stuff like that. But I do know distinctly that the people who have said no to coming on the show were exclusively uh, women or people of color. And then there were several instances where people would come on and explicitly said like, look, I do not want to be the spokesperson for black people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which, by the way, wasn't the goal of having them on the show. Like in all cases, we want to just have a conversation about this person's background. Let's talk about design. And before every show, we ask people, you know, like what's on your mind? What's interesting that you would want to talk about? And sometimes people say, like in your case, hey, we should talk about diversity in, in design. Yeah. And in other cases, I think people are probably rightfully exhausted by that or don't want this responsibility of being a spokesperson for an entire group of people who they might not even know. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I I would say it's not like we don't talk about race. I think we kind of tried to skew towards like, what is most interesting to this person that is coming on the show and Mm -hmm. and guide the show that way. So sometimes it came up and sometimes it didn't. Yeah. And like, I'll even let people know when I have them on the show, like I never explicitly lead with saying, we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion. Um, I think just the fact that I'm a black designer and they're a black designer that already automatically creates a safe space for us to just talk about those kinds of issues without explicitly like zeroing in or honing in on them. Like it will just come up in conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't get me wrong. I used to say the same thing sometimes if I come on podcasts, like I don't want to talk about diversity. I don't want to talk about it. I feel like it's apt to talk about it now because that's where the general attention is. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind talking about it, especially cause I've got, the work that can back it up. Uh, but I understand that like 10,000% because what happens is you end up getting pigeonholed into only being asked to speak about that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and not about your work. Yeah. Which sounds like just an exhausting and horrible problem to face. It's like, <laughs> Oh, there's this one thing that you spoke up about one time. And now all of a sudden that's your like slogan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that's why for a long time I stopped speaking at conferences because that was the only thing that people wanted me to talk about. And I'm like, I've, I'm running the studio successfully. I've been doing it for over, I think at the time I was running it for over six years and I've got this podcast and it's doing really well. And they're like, yeah, but let's talk about diversity in the industry. I was like, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. Let's, let's talk about my work and how awesome I am. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. not, to, not to be, you know, completely egotistical, but like it, <laughs> no, I it, get it. it does yeah. end up yeah. becoming that where it's, it's not about you as a person and the work that you contribute. It's more about like the, the checkbox that you tick off in terms of an affinity group. And that's not, you know, I don't think anybody likes to do just that at the end of the day. So even with the platform that I have with revision path, like, yes, I'm black. The guests are black, but we talk about them. We, I give them the mic and really let them have the platform to talk about the work that they do. And yeah, I mean, you talk about the work, like there's stuff to learn here. Uh, I was listening to your episode with Dantley from 
from Twitter and I'm like learning all this stuff about Twitter and like what designer doesn't want to learn about how Twitter works? Come on. <laughs> okay, I'm going to put my ignorance on display here, but are there other podcasts like yours? Because honestly, there's not that many design podcasts in general, mm-hmm. not even to mention like the specific niche that you've occupied. Are there other podcasts by black designers that are interviewing other black creatives that we should know about and link in the show notes? Like what else is happening that you're seeing in in the podcast space? I know that there are some and I, God, I should have made a list before because I don't remember the names of them. I know that there are more. Um, Now in terms of how active they are, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. I think some have kind of started up and then just haven't continued. Oh God. I don't, remember the names of them i I'm, I'm trying to remember i, I know one like i know there's some in tech like i think it was is it like two black friends and that's ihani and someone mm-hmm. else yeah i was gonna say Ihani. oh yeah two black uh two black nerds i don't two know black are, nerds, they, yeah. are they still doing that i don't think they are i think they stopped doing it yeah, yeah like there was yeah. certainly a lot that i knew of that were um that were going on at the time there was uh two black nerds there was black nerd problems there was uh uh, the of ten podcast. There was, there was like a bunch of them, but then they all just kind of, you know, stopped updating. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, we're both old in this game in terms of <laughs> just the longevity of doing yeah, it. Yeah. So ancient. Yeah. So I do know some. I can send you all a list. I can do that. Cool, Here's cool. what I say to people: um, the design podcast space has lots of room for voices. Um, yes. Design mm-hmm. details is not the the one that should be uh, doing all things for all people. And certainly I don't think that we we are. Uh, but when people are like, you know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I'm like, they're, please start more podcasts. Like, yeah, do yeah, yeah. Interview people like it, it can be this exact same format. Like there's room mm-hmm. for more voices than Marshall and I like, come on, uh, we can do better. So I, I encourage people to start their own podcast. It's hard though, right? Yeah. If I had a nickel for every time that someone sent me a message that was like, well, where's the Asian version of revision path? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's the, where's the Latinx version of revision path? I'm like, go out and make it like, yeah. please do. I will help support you and get the word out. Yeah. If you do it, like, don't put it all on me. I don't feel comfortable speaking for these other communities. Cause that's not, my community mm-hmm. but by all means you go do that i mean i used to get ambushed at talks about why i don't do that which is another reason i don't do conferences like people will come and like throw that on me like you should be doing this you should be talking to more of these people like whoa, 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 whoa i'm in my lane i'm staying in my lane that's my lane yeah i i guess personally you know it's hard like we get recommendations to do things and i'm like yes we should be doing all these things but there's only there's one episode a week i remember like we we used to get basically weekly was like, you should be interviewing more junior designers. You should be interviewing more people outside of tech. You should be inter- interviewing mm-hmm. old people. You should be interviewing like insert any demographic, any stage of career, any type of field within design. I'm like, those yeah. all sound fascinating, but literally any one of those could be a, a podcast. And I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think that we're perfect, but <laughs> it's hard to like everyone wants something specific for them. And I say, uh, we'll do our best, but also you should start a podcast and like fill that niche. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like there's so many, there's so much room out there for more de- design voices for different design voices. Like, please, please do it. And now the tools are easier to use than ever. Yeah. Like I, I did my first, my first podcast I recorded for a vision path was on my phone. It was on the, the, what was the first Google phone? The G one. 
Yeah, the one that yeah. had the screen that like flipped up in the little trackball. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I yeah, recorded yeah. The, my first episode on that because someone had read the sites and they were like, "Yeah, I'm going to be uh, down in Atlanta, and I would love to, to like actually talk with you and record our interview, you know, for the the website." And I was like, "Oh, I don't, I don't have a microphone." <laughs> um, and we we went to a restaurant here called One Eared Stag in Inman Park, and I put the phone on the table and we just started talking and like. The audio is terrible. I keep the podcast interview up just to let people know, like, this is where I started and this yeah. is where we've gone to. But the contrast, yeah. The tools now are so much easier. There's Anchor. There's you can do real. I mean, the iPhone has great recording with voice notes and stuff. Yeah, there's so yeah. much more technology and things to record a podcast on now. Just start a podcast. The like <laughs> you just reminded me seriously. That, just like I love this contrast of first episode to to now. Mm. when Brynn and I first started, we were sitting on a floor with like, I forget, crappy USB mics, but we had Brynn's socks over the microphone as <laughs> as a pop filter. So uh-huh. I'm like breathing in Brynn's, I mean, they're clean socks, but <laughs> still, come on, like laundry detergent <laughs> is a distracting scent while you're having a conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, okay. So let's end on our recurring segment, cool things. So Marsha and I, we share cool things at the end of every episode. And this cool thing this week is a podcast. It's called Hidden Brain from NPR. And I only heard about this because friend of the pod, Gabriel Valdivia, sent me two episodes this week, mm. or I guess uh, in the last two weeks. And both of them were fantastic. And so now I'm really into this podcast. I like it. I got to go through the backlog. But I'm on that on that weekly listen now. Uh, so Hidden Brain and yeah, I, what do you know this podcast, Marshall? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'll re- I'll read the quick bio for people who haven't heard of it. It says uh, Shankar Vedantam uses science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior, shape our choices, and direct our relationships. Uh, so the one I listened to today on a drive is called "The Air We Breathe." It came out on June twelfth, and it's about implicit bias. And it was a very good listen. It's like well-produced it's npr level production oh yeah uh and it's it's fun like brain psychology behavioral kind of topics so if that sounds like it might scratch your itch uh, check it out and and shout out to gabe for the suggestions if i remember correctly they have a really nice uh word mark as far as like the it's lovely the letters are hidden in each other and it creates an illusion it's pretty cool oh yeah i've seen that it's got like in the negative space you can see yeah exactly the i is in the a's negative space or something like that yeah 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 all right uh so that's my cool thing uh we'll have links in the show notes but give it a listen marshall what's up cool thing all right. So my so and and follow up. We talked about uh, Last of Us Part Two and the uh, accessibility stuff that they've innovated there. And um, so Brian, I'm a busy man. I'm a busy man, and I don't have a whole lot of time lately. Um, so what I have started to do is on these larger like AAA games that I really want to play, but I don't have the time for. Um, and also, Last of Us is kind of scary, and I don't like scary games. Um, is I find a YouTuber who plays the way that I play, and then I just watch a Let's Play series of them playing the game, which is I find to be far Gosh, more efficient because I can fast forward through like um, combat things that I'm not actually playing, so I can I can basically just get the story, especially for a game like The Last of Us, which is about the story in my opinion, uh, and that's what the first one was lauded for. So, so the the uh, creator that I have found on YouTube uh, who plays the way I do and is the the kind of friend on the couch that you'd want to be sitting next to while they're playing the game is a creator named Christopher Odd. 
uh, yeah, not a whole lot to say about it. He's just a he's just a uh, a guy who plays video games the way I do, which is like to check all the corners and and look for uh, stuff to loot, and but also like pay attention to the story and comment on the beauty of the uh, environment and and what's going on uh, in the game. So yeah, if you're if you're looking to not play The Last of Us Part Two, but you want to watch it, <laughs> uh, Christopher Out is a good way to go there. Awesome, nice. Okay, cool. Maurice, you're up. Okay, so I I actually have two cool things. Can I mention more than one, or should nope. it just be one? Against the rules, strictly <laughs> not allowed. Sorry, it has to go through management for this. Let me, let me check. Let me let me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> okay, so so one of them uh, is a podcast, uh, and it's actually a podcast that I used to really like back in the day, and they took a bit of a hiatus, and then they've most recently come back. Uh, so the podcast is called Bayside High and Drunk. <laughs> and, I love it already. Uh, it's it's these two guys, Matt and Mike, and they review Saved by the Bell episodes. I was one say, of them Bayside is high. high is from Saved by the Bell, right? Okay, amazing. Yeah. I love it. I love this. One one of them is high, and one of them is drunk. <laughs> amazing. And the awesome. the the episodes are already super hilarious. I wish their old archives were up, but they they took a hiatus around like. 2016 or so and then they just came back this year um and they're doing episodes now on a on a fairly regular clip i think it's leading up to the reboot of saved by the bell that's about to come out uh this year oh no really yeah like back in the high school not like the original when they went to like college and all. no no no. it's like it's like a continuation like zach is like the governor of california oh no really and like slater is the pe teacher at bayside now and Uh uh-huh it's a it's a it's like a weird continuation of the story. Is Mr. Um, Belding still principal? Wait, was it Mr. Belding? Is that is that Boy Meets World or Saved by the Bell? No, that's Mr. Belding. Okay, that's, yeah, yeah. that's what I say by the Bell. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if Mr. Belding is gonna be in the the reboot or not, but um <laughs> actually the last time I saw the actor who played Mr. Belding was in an episode of uh It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, which is, yeah. Which is really, yep, yep. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> uh, but Bayside High and Drunk, they essentially like recap episodes of Saved by the Bell. One of them is drunk. One of them is high. It is hilarious. Perfect. I recommend listening to it if you are high or drunk. Yeah. It just <laughs> enhances it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, really great podcast. So that's that's the first thing. Okay, nailed and then, the first one. Can't wait for the second one. Now. <laughs> and then the second thing is actually a uh, Instagram profile. Um, it's an Instagram profile called Butter ATL. Butter like what you spread on toast. B-U-T-T-E-R dot A-T-L. Okay. Um, and it's basically a, um, I guess you can call it a local Atlanta uh, Instagram account. But the way that they use Instagram is unlike any other Instagram profile I've seen. Like they really use it like an interactive magazine. So the way that they utilize stories and slideshows and IGTV and all of that is really savvy. It really, I think, represents the culture of Atlanta very well. It's super well designed. Um, I would highly recommend anyone check it out if they just want to know more about the city of Atlanta and what it's like and what's going on here. They should definitely, definitely check it out. The guy who puts it together, Brandon Butler, is a friend of mine. He was also on Revision Path, Episode 7, if anyone wants to check that out. Uh, but it's a it's a really, really great Instagram profile. It's probably one of the the best ones I've seen from a brand perspective, just in terms of how they use it. Like It's so creative. Awesome. Cool. cool. We'll have links in the show notes. I'm looking at it now. This is yeah. cool. I like uh, 
they they're doing cool things with the multi-post uploads where all the posts sort of bleed together so it's like a continuous timeline it's pretty cool yeah and like they just recently uh started up a like hotline for people that were going to be out protesting and everything and i think they had also did something similar around voting when we had our primary here a couple of weeks ago so it's a really great uh profile i definitely recommend people check it out fantastic well maurice this has been such a pleasure and i'm glad you know four years later we made it happen <laughs> uh, my dad <laughs> uh for people who want to to follow your work and and you know whatever happens next for you with with the job hunt where can people follow you on the internet sure so um i'm pretty easy to find i'm at marischerry.com m-a-u-r-i-c-e-c-h-e-r-r-y.com you can also find me on Twitter at Maurice Cherry. I have a Tumblr blog that I sort of update every now and then at blog.mauricecherry.com, but you'll find links to all of that as well as my like LinkedIn profile and stuff on my website. And then for Revision Path, it's at revisionpath.com. And then you can also find it on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Fantastic. Cool. Links in the show notes. Links everywhere. Go click them. Thanks for joining us, man. Uh, this was great. Thank you, Mar Maurice. This was great. Yeah, well worth the wait. This was fun. I really enjoyed it. All right. That's been episode 352. We hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Maurice. If you did, please go to Twitter and tweet at Maurice and let him know what you thought of the episode. I think it would be awesome to to see those tweets and would make all of us feel really lovely. So go tweet at Maurice Cherry and follow him on Twitter. If you enjoyed the show and uh, haven't been supporting us on Patreon, you can get access to those bonus rapid fire questions that we had with Maurice. If you go to patreon.com slash design details, yeah. you can support the show for just a buck a month and uh, we really appreciate it. So thank you to everyone who's supporting already and to our new VIPs this week. If you need more podcasts for your ears, go to spec.fm. That is our podcast network for designers and developers just like you. Otherwise, that's it. Follow us on Twitter at Design Details FM. Hit us up, tweet at us, tweet at Maurice, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Uh, I, I don't meet very many people who have played the trombone before, Marisa. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Marshall's so excited. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. of us. One, one of, of us. us. Look, yeah, look, exactly. easy, easy to learn, easy to learn, hard to master. Like, it's only got seven positions, but man, you mm -hmm. really got to like... And it, you only really use like you... five of them most of the time, but yeah. Yeah, but like you really have to like get good with with pitch because you're mm -hmm. just controlling the length of the air and the column. So you have to mm -hmm. be able to hear like, oh, I'm flat. Oh, I'm sharp, which is different if you're using like a keyed instrument or a valve yeah. instrument, like a saxophone or, like a trum or a trumpet or something. Glissando as an instrument, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, enough trombone nerdery. Words. <laughs> I know some of those words. <laughs> Thank you both.